Blog Talk Radio. Angeles, California. Welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show with your host, Shaw McCain. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Shaw McCain. I'd like to welcome listeners to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show. My show is created to provide an open-minded platform that welcomes the gifted and extraordinary thinkers from every walk of life and circumstance. Please follow the Paranormal and Sacred on Facebook for upcoming events and special speakers from around the world. We're also translated into many different languages for our listeners outside the country. The call in number with, tonight with, uh, for questions of our guest is 619-924-9744, and the paranormal and sacred airs every Friday night, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. During this show, I can take questions in order in chat, and you may call in with your questions and talk with our guest tonight. Any buzz killers in chat or on the phone or any otherwise will be similarly kicked out. So anyway, very nice. Uh, I have a couple of announcements before we welcome our guests on tonight. Tune in to the Paranormal Angels every Wednesday night. They're my dear friends over there. Their show starts at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time Wednesday. And there's also a call-in number there at 718-664-6407. They talk everything paranormal, and they try to bring about a positive message. And it's my, my friend, Marsha Becker and her, her sister, Geraldine Dallas, actually. And also, Ciro International has an incredible uh, show coming up. And go to Ciro, C-E-R-O, International.com to get your tickets. Only 15 bucks at the door. And it's called Watcher with L.A. Marzulli and Richard Shaw. And it's going to be live January 10th, 2015. Hey, my son's birthday. At 7 p.m., they're talking about physical evidence here of alien abduction and interference and everything else and also uh there's a there's just a nominal fee just to almost like a just to keep the speakers coming in and pay their tickets and everything else and it's only 15 bucks so uh, be sure you go over there www.serointernational.com and we love those people and of course i've belonged there for many many long time and you can also contact Yvonne Smith if you're having any problems. She does uh, past life regressions and things like that. And she also creates a space where people can come and discuss their abduction experiences. It's a very private and secret meeting. We meet every month at a different location. And you have to call Yvonne Smith and contact her at www.serialinternational.com. And everything's done privately. And uh, that's it. And, uh, you know, we have a wonderful speaker tonight, and uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about him. His name is Gary Bobroff, his master's, and he's an internationally acclaimed author and speaker and a Jungian-orientated psychotherapist in private practice. His recently released book is entitled Crop Circles Young and the Reemergence of the Archetypal Feminine, and that's what we're going to be discussing tonight. 
And Gary has an undergraduate degree from the University of British Columbia, Canada, and a master's degree in Jungian Orientated Psychology from the Pacifica Graduate Institute of Santa Barbara, California. And boy, do I envy him. I've always wanted to go there. He writes and speaks internationally, exploring the ancient themes that draw us farther into engagement with life's deep mystery. He has been privileged to visit crop circles in Canada, the U.S., the United Kingdom, and his website, for more information, you can go to gsdobroff.com and www.youngandcropcircles.net. Anyway, I think I see his number, but it looks like a different number from what I have. So we're going to just check and see if this is really him. You're live with the Paranormal Sacred. Is this uh, Gary? Hi, Shar. Gary? Hi, Shar. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you great. Can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you great, yeah. Yay. Is this Gary, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, you know, I get the cranksters calling me, and like, I could be interviewing you, and you could be just a whole other person, because your number came up totally different. So <laughs> I don't know if you Skyped in or what. So I went, yeah, okay, yeah, if I have to buzz, number, kill yeah. this guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so anyway, your beautiful your book is absolutely beautiful, Gary, and I want to thank you so much for being on the show with us tonight. This is a really big deal. Thank you. For me. Thank you. Anyway, and your and the, even the cover is gorgeous, uh, and it very much reminds me of the Jungian approach and the beautiful circles and everything that we're talking about and. Uh, why don't you tell uh, our audience, for those who aren't familiar with uh, you or Young and, and your work, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and and um, what was your process growing up and uh, coming you know, to the, write these things and be interested in this topic? Sure, yeah. Um, thank you. And again, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and talk about this with you. Yeah. Um, my 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 um, background, as you said, is you know Jungian, and uh, that's from Carl Jung. And Carl Jung was, of course, the you know the founder of much of what we consider to be basic psychology today. You know, everything to do with dream interpretation and archetypes. And you know, he coined the word synchronicity. Um, <clears throat> he gave us our language for introvert and extrovert and personality types and all that. So. Young behind so much of what we take for granted when we're talking about psychology today. And my personal history with it is, um, you know, I've been uh, a student of Jung for over 20 years, and uh, almost exactly 20 years ago right now I started studying Jung. And like you said, you know, I was really privileged to go to Pacifica and be with the great teachers there and write a master's thesis on crop circles. And and then after I did that, to be able to spend a few years turning that thesis into this book and really sit down and read everything that I thought related to crop circles uh, that was written by Jung and Jungians. And and as a Jungian, you know, the basics of crop circles are, are just so interesting. The, the basic fact that it's in grain, it's in wheat, you know, it's in these living plants um, is really fascinating. And then you have this basic, you know, it's like, you know, the basic theme of the circle, you know, crop and circle, crop circles. Um, and the circle is something that Jung 
you know, one of the most fascinating images for Yun was the circle and the mandala. And, um, and he saw the circle as a symbol for, you know, the, the whole of nature and the whole of who we are, unconscious and conscious, um, you know, the, the, the larger world and the, the day-to-day world. So, you know, crop circles just really fit right in with Jung and with the, the grain symbol, of course, that relates to the feminine, and we'll talk about that more. But, you know, that was the basics for me, and I just, uh, you know, I had a, a hit on it one day about 12 or 13 years ago and then started started this process of really trying to really give readers a chance to appreciate crop circles in maybe a different way than they're used to. Yes, and uh, Young, I also even mentioned this circle as a symbol in the sky and why people were taking off with this flying saucer thing, the saucer, the circle. You know, like all, he said mm-hmm. it was a feminine there, too. And who are you saying um, these crop circles are by? What's your take on that? Well, you know, for me, I th- yeah, I mean, for me, I, I think that when I talk about crop circles in the book and in, when I do presentations on the material, um, I, I let people know that in the crop circle world, there's sort of three different categories of discussion that people have about the agency. There's the idea that they were, you know, on some level made by something extraterrestrial or alien or something spiritual or something to do with the earth or with the fact that we're in this time of crisis, uh, this, you know, man-made crisis, uh, you know, on the earth. And so those are the three general topics. And, you know, I'm really interested uh, in how we think about those, those categories. Um, Somebody said recently that my book is about the psychology of how we think about crop circles. And I I think that's really, really right. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so for me, I'm more interested in asking people questions about that than giving them answers. I certainly believe that there are um, non-human conscious entities or beings in the world, for sure. I mean, that for me is what I believe. Um, But in terms of what's making crop circles, you know, I I think it's important that we sit with the mystery and that we also uh, question our reflexive need to come up with answers and solutions really quickly. So, you know, I really encourage people to look at, you know, what their own approach to the mystery is. Yes, and... uh... What fascinates you about them specifically? Uh, you could have picked anything else, and why? How did this happen? How did you come to cross circles? Because <laughs> this has been going on a long time, and we've been watching videos and uh, spoofs and uh, the lights in the distance. Is that creating it? Is a car, you know, headlights on cars? Is it, you know, is it three Scottish guys that got drunk in uh, Scotland, or uh, you know what I'm saying? So we've been following this all along. But there mm-hmm. is beauty in what you're saying about the grain thing. To me, it's uh, exquisite, but I'll tell you about that after you tell me why you got interested mm-hmm. in this particular mm-hmm. aspect. Well, I, I was surprised, first of all, that nobody in the Jungian world had written about it. And since um, since mm-hmm. I did that um, for the first time 10 years ago as a master's thesis, um, a lot more people have started writing about it 
in the in the Jungian world, and there's now other people that are either doing a masters about it or have written books, kind of coming from somewhat similar places. Um, you know, uh, I think what really got me into it, you know, really was the fact that that um, you know, I think like everybody in the '90s, I was fascinated by them, but. I think as a Jungian, I just was surprised nobody had, had looked at these topics because, of course, Jung did write a book on UFOs. And, in fact, I had a, a very interesting thing happen to me, which was that after I had completed the thesis, about a year later, I was in the library at Pacifica, and I found a, a very small pamphlet there. And in this pamphlet, there were uh, paintings that had been done by an English uh, art therapist, one of the early art therapists uh, in the English countryside in 1951. And these images that she had been painted that were dream images and visions that came to her that included a UFO with two women standing on a hill looking at it. And, um, and then this UFO came down on the ground and settled on the earth and kind of spun around very much like you might imagine a crop circle does. And there's a series of images where the UFO and the women are kind of all spun together into the, into a flower and then into this kind of plant like things. And there's a whole series of these images that I talk about in the final chapter of the book. And you can see some of those on the website as well. And, um, so this woman, uh, Irene Champernown, she, painted these images, and her analyst was Tony Wolf, who was Jung's uh, sort of partner uh, in the psychological world, as there were so many women that, that really contributed to Jungian psychology. It's not just Jung. Uh, yeah. But Tony Wolf was one, one of these. And um, so, so Irene sent these dream paintings over to Zurich, and Tony, an, uh, Tony Wolf analyzed them, and they had a correspondence. And this little book that I found detailed the pictures and the correspondence, and it really felt like about as close a connection that I was ever going to get to really directly linking Carl Jung to crop circles. And in fact, when Tony Wolf died, Irene Champernown flew over and sat with Emma Jung and Carl Jung and talked about these images and the reemergence of the feminine in our time and how it all kind of came together. And they're so similar to crop circles that I really felt like, wow, here's the, you know, the Holy grail of connecting these, these pieces and uh, Jung was so struck by these paintings. The very first one in the series, he actually used it for the cover of his book on UFOs for the first edition of that. So um, they they were all really moved that they felt there was something for for you know everybody to appreciate in these images. Yes, and they're uh, beautiful images. Um, I wanted to tell you about a dream I had. Uh, that has to do with this that was so beautiful. I must have had this, uh, I'm thinking, more than 10 years ago. And it was just a picture, like an icon of Jesus, just a typical what we would look at and see an icon of Jesus. And around his neck was a wreath of of braided wheat, like really gorgeous uh, golden wheat, and it was like a, a braid, three braids, and it went in a loop around his neck. What you would think it would look awkward because it was a literal circle. You know, it's a wreath. Mm-hmm. And then that's mm-hmm. all it was, was presenting itself, and that was it. That was a dream. And uh, I realized that the, the wheat 
actually, when I was thinking this through, and uh, someday I'll draw a picture of this, uh, but uh, it was so stunning to me that you brought up these grains and everything else, and the, when you think of the beauty of grain and how it's nutritious and also it needs, it needs to be crushed in order to, to be the bread for us. Um, that's mm-hmm. what I put together about that dream, and I wanted to tell that to you. It never related to anything before, and then all of a sudden it relates here. So what do you think about that? Well, you know, it's a beautiful dream, and I think you're very lucky to have had it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the basics of the grain symbol in Jungian psychology are, as you said, you know, it's connection to this beautiful miracle of life and the, the miracle of all life in our world and the way that a seed, you know, goes into the apparently dead earth and then magically, you know, reemerges with the new plants and then that gives us life. And, you know, our, our culture is very far away from that miracle. And, and psychologically, we've really lost that peace in us that really appreciates nature and the world we live in in, a, in, a, in the way we should, in a powerful and deep way. And that's really a big part of what the book is about, is that dynamic and how we've lost it. And, you know, grain is this wonderful symbol, and it's so lovely to consider it in that dream you had, because, you know, I, I think, um, and I talk about this a lot in the book, There's, I think we're at a moment where the metaphors or the zeitgeist of our time is changing directions. You know, you might imagine that for for many hundreds or thousands of years, we've kind of been going up in an upward direction, kind of out of the body and the instincts and into our heads and, and, and getting clarity and a strong ego and all that. And we needed to take that journey. It was an important step in the evolution of consciousness. But I think that with symbols like the grain, for me, they point to us needing to come back down both energetically and personally and culturally and spiritually down into the earth and down into our hearts and down into the real contexts of our real lives and, you know, the mistakes we make and the, um, the relationships we're in and the context of our lives. And, you know, on a global sense, that's both seeing the damage we're doing to the planet and, finding the mystery and the beauty and, you know, synchronicity and things like crop circles where we're opened up. But I think a lot of our time is very much characterized by this kind of up head trip, which is psychologically uh, an inflation, a grandiosity, a a kind of narcissistic self-involvement that really characterizes our culture where we're completely self-involved. And, you know, I think more or less we think God is, you know, in our iPhone. You know, um, you know, and I think it's a very dangerous state that we're in. I think you don't destroy your own planet unless you're really lost in that kind of state where you're just entranced with yourself and your own creative technology and all that. So this book is very much about the metaphor of are we going up or are we coming back down? And I think, you know, crop circles are on the ground. They're where they are. Well, they're grounding you in something that's nutritious and healing. And some people find great comfort, you know, Mm -hmm. from them. And not only the idea of them, of even even physically sitting in them. And uh, it's, uh, 
I don't know. It's just a beautiful thing. And uh, you have some. I, I can I read you something. Well, I want to read the listeners because you already wrote it. But sure. on cha- in chapter four, it's called Antique Pageantry, which is uh, beautiful. I just love the way um, you're writing all this. It's it's really like art. And you're talking about cultures around the world that have produced corn, rice, wheat, barley, and all the staple grains of civilization of worship the divinities whom they believe protected and sustained our crops. Human adoration of these figures had traditionally been predominantly directed toward the form of feminine images, goddesses of life and vegetation. And then you go on to, with a, a beautiful quote by Berger. And um, I just want to tell you that when we go back to, uh, are you talking about dating as far back as 30,000 BCE? Are you talking about that, that round-shaped, fertile uh, figure that was found, I guess it was in Africa, I'm pretty sure. Is that what you're talking about, the female? Oh, you mean like the old Venuses? Yes. Yeah, I'm not sure what exactly which one you're talking about. But we certainly know the old sort of Venus of Willendorf and those type of images go a long, long way back. And they're the, they're the earliest, um, they're the earliest, form of uh, a god statue or a god symbol that the that we can have ever found are are statues that you know celebrate um you know the woman and um you know that's our first you know our first expression of wonder and awe and a, a sort of trying to you know put that into a form was the making of these statues like Venus of Willendorf and other ones that have been found since then or that are even earlier. Um, that's our first attempt to kind of just praise and and give thanks and venerate, you know, something. Um, you know, we were we were really connected to that for a long time. And, of course, we had to outgrow it and we had to go on this journey. But, but you know, I think something's pointing us back in that direction now. And you mentioned previously you know, the kind of comfort we get from looking at these crop circles. You know, they are beautiful, and there's a harmony in the sacred geometry there, and there's people that have done great work on that sacred geometry. I can tell you who to go look at for that. But even just going through crop circles and just looking at them visually can really, you know, transport you, I think. And I've certainly had that feeling myself and with other people where just looking at them can can really have an effect, you know. That's a can, and so when you're going, when you have visited these crop, you say you visited these crop circles throughout the world. What was your feeling about them? What did you? Uh, are you going for the symbology? Uh, do you care where they come from, or uh, you know what? What is your explanation for this phenomenon? <laughs> Well, you know, uh, I mean, I I think, first of all, you know, chapter one of the book is the science. And there's lots of really, really good science. There's at least 10 categories of scientific evidence that each one of them would be enough to say there's definitely something non-human going on here. Now, there's definitely a hoaxed phenomenon, too. I mean, there's definitely hoaxers out there in the night making crop circles, especially in England. But, you know... um, in the history in chapter or in the science in chapter one and in the history in chapter two, you know, it's really clear we have to get grounded and realize that, Hey, there is this objectively discernible mystery going on. 
whether that's electromagnetic changes in the plants and the soil, uh, physical changes in the plants themselves, um, changes in how the seeds germinate, cellular level changes. There's great work. Check out bltresearch.com, bltresearch.com, or read it in the book. And then there's also, you know, uh, in the history as well, uh, there's other evidence that I collected that's not at the BLT website, but uh, in the history as well, we know it goes back hundreds of years that crop circles have been having happening across Europe, probably across the world for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I, I think it's certainly possible that the origin of the stone circle phenomenon in England and Europe began perhaps in conjunction with crop circles to hold that energy when they arrived thousands of years ago. It's possible. Um, but we know from the history and the, uh, the science that there's something real that goes beyond humans going on here. Now, where do I go from there with that is, you know, like I said, I'm really trying to contribute something from a psychological point of view. So I'm not really concerned with the answers. I, I think it's important that we get past the point where we still think it might be humans. I think it's really important to get past that point because part of the psychology of our time is this inflation, this grandiosity, and the grandiosity can't really imagine that there's any other creative force in the universe other than itself. So it can't really imagine that there could be other life forms or even God. It's We're so culturally caught up in ourselves that we... we I think we actually psychologically imagine we created the universe. Um, you know, you, we use metaphors like clockwork universe and people are talking about artificial intelligence and biological robots and all that kind of thing. And I think, you know, those are metaphors of human made objects, you know, a clock, people make clocks, God doesn't make clocks. So I think it's really important that we get past the point and do the work that we each have to do individually to get past the denial and see the, the science and the history for ourselves. Then we begin a journey of psychology. And we say, well, what do I think? Do I think it's this or that or the other? And then I can, you can go on and read through my book and get you know, a kind of a framework for your own deeper appreciation through the symbolic lens of, of what the gra grain means inside us. You know, these, uh, the myths that we have in terms of goddesses, that comes from somewhere inside us. You know, it comes from nature. Uh, so there's a place inside of us that relates to all these things. And as you explore it for yourself, um, you know, that's going to trigger your own things. And <clears throat> anytime you're talking about God or questioning what the universe really looks like on the big level, that brings up people's own personal stuff right away because our own conceptions of the universe or God or whatever, or what the world is like, that comes definitely, uh, at least in part, from our experience of our parents. You know, the first, you know, the first real gods in our world, right, are our parents, and how well did they uh, attend to us or not, you know. And so anytime we start peeling the layers of this onion, you know, we, we bring up a lot of personal stuff. So I think it's really important to give people their own journey and their own way that they can proceed and, you know, play with, different possibilities and get to go on um, an exploration that's their own. And, you know, you know, even if I were to come on your show and say, oh, you know, crop circles are caused by this, that, or the other, that would um, 
take people away from their own process. And I think that's really important. <clears throat> Excuse me. I haven't been, um, you know, I haven't been on the, on the spaceship or whatever. You know, I haven't had an eyewitness experience myself. I do talk about a few of those in the book. And what's mm-hmm. interesting about those is, is that people see a lot of different things. They don't necessarily see just one kind of thing. But again, right. if I had, you know, even if I had had the experience of, you know, being with the crop circle makers when they did it, for me to come along and tell that to you, it runs the risk of me taking away from your process. And I think what I'm trying to do with this book is really invite you to go more deeply into the mystery. You know, yes, our, our culture. Go ahead. Well, our culture really wants to imagine that it has all the answers. You know, and I think this is about having to deal with, you know, um, things that aren't in the box that we'd like to put them in, you know, things that are bigger than our picture of the world. So. It is. Yeah, that's why I don't. Go ahead. Well, what I was thinking, it's, uh, you know, it's, um, I highly recommend this book because it will help you uh, explore uh, your personal feelings about this whole thing. Uh, And it's, Crop Circles, Young, and the Reemergence of the Archetypical Feminine. And how do you feel that uh, the feminine has been... How did... Okay, I'll ask you straight out. Why did men get so terrified of the feminine? What happened? In your... (laughs) (laughs) Why are men scared? Let me know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think on lots of ways it's a personal question. You know, like I think for lots of individual men, they're going to have an individual reaction and different men are going to be comfortable with that term and some men are going to be uncomfortable with it. And I, I think that, you know, as someone who's coming at it and looks at the truth of the whole psychological experience, um, there's two sides to it. There's one side that says, you know, the feminine isn't better than the masculine okay there's not there isn't none of these things are better and worse they're just nature so nature has good and bad in all of its things and all of its qualities so from a union point of view we see <clears throat> nature as the beginning and the end and that you start off as a you know kind of metaphorically and you see this culturally and personally too but Uh, metaphorically people start off you know in the union with their mother so that psychologically is also represented as being kind of lost in the unconscious you know there's no division there's no clarity there's no ego and then as I read about in the book you know we've gone on this historical journey where we've you know really separated from nature we've we've gotten out of the unconscious and developed this strong ego that can control the body and the instincts in fact, we've gone so far into that that we're almost cut off from the instincts and lost in our heads. Um, but that's the masculine journey, is that breaking out of the mother figure into separation and distinction and adulthood. And everybody needs to do that a little bit to have a strong ego and be able to say no and make boundaries. Um, but the journey we're at now takes us to, requires us to go the step further, and that is not leaving behind the masculine, but going to the feminine in the highest form, which is feminine that has 
a good balance of feminine and masculine, where we're going back to the heart. We're including all this kind of wisdom and intelligence and distinctive clarity of the masculine, the ego, um, you know, that, that energy of the masculine that can separate and draw things out clearly and say, this is truth, you know, this is good, this is bad. We're taking that energy and bringing that home to the feminine. And that means bringing it home to each of our individual hearts and to our collective issues that matter about the earth and what kind of society we want to live in and how we treat each other. And so it's bringing that masculine energy that's caught up in our heads back in the body and the feeling. Um, and I think, <clears throat> so to answer your question, I think that there's a danger with the feminine and that is that kind of regressive uh, desire that we all have to go kind of back to mommy and back where it's comfortable and that um, not, you know, sufficiently striking out on our own and not having the, the strength and all that to be an, an individual. Uh, but um, the real healthy move is it's kind of like a wedding that we're at today where we have to bring this masculine clarity back to, to the world, to ourselves, to our hearts, to the, you know, that bride that is waiting for us and the incomplete integration of masculine and feminine. So um, that can be very scary for folks because our culture teaches men, you know, not to like their feelings and not be vulnerable and all that. Um, and that's something to get over, uh, of course, in our own individual ways. Um, but the danger, too, with the feminine, like I said, can be going back into kind of overly simplistic, um, comfortable solutions instead of going forward through truth, through clarity and, and the work of really figuring out what's true and what's not true, and then bringing that you know, home to the feminine at the end. So, like I said, there's no one answer for that, but... Um, I don't know why some men have a problem with it. Our, certainly our culture really pushes buttons for some people, and, and there's a certain truth to that sometimes where, like I said, that regressive urge. Um, you know, there's a great Paul Simon line that I quote in the book about um, the bad days when I lie in bed and think about what might have been. You know, so that's that regressive yeah. pull in us just to kind of get lost in, like, the fantasies of how we shoulda, coulda, woulda, and all that kind of stuff. And that's you know, we need to, each of us in our own way, find the, the gumption to, to, you know, move forward as a warrior a little bit and move into establishing ourselves and truth and all that. And, and everybody's got their own take on it. But, but there is that um, struggle. And, and, you know, our culture uh, is very, very masculine culture. I mean, that's, Jung said that the biggest problem in our, you know, in the Western world is that we uh, value masculine archetypes over feminine ones and so we're at the kind of an end of um, a point in time and that point in this previous time and zeitgeist that's ending is a zeitgeist that really overvalues the masculine over privileges I mean that's rampant throughout our society um, you know it overvalues men and makes it a lot easier often for men you know, in the business world to, to go ahead faster than women, you know, through biased cultural norms. Um, but also psychologically, you know, we really value, um, you know, for example, with crop circles, and I read about this a lot in the book, the culture really, really wants us to be certain, to pretend that we have all the answers. Here's the answers. 
You know, here they are. And that's just not true. And and we need to be able to sit with unknowing, with not knowing, with mystery. You know, we need to find that humility again. And like I said, we, the primary characteristic of our time is that it's an over-masculine inflation. We're high on ourselves in a masculine way. And it's with that high, that masculine high, comes a, a break from the world, a, a removal of ourselves from the world. We're, we're so distanced from it that we can let ourselves kind of float towards a, you know, an environmental apocalypse without really all being up in arms about it. Um, so I talk about it way more in the book, of course, but that's really, I think, you know, our culture is so, um, masculine oriented that it's, it's, it can be tough for, for some folks to accept the feminine and, and really, you know, these are all just neutral terms for me from a psychological point of view, but I look around the world and I see the imbalance in our culture and in the world. And that's what I see crop circles as being part of the remedy for. Yes, and uh, that's what that's what I want to talk about is that how uh, crop circles are are how are they there to help us? And uh, you're so right about the uh, the man's world. That's why I brought it up that uh, women have been. Uh, I'm not I, okay. Women until like right now, the young girls are actually learning a different way. The really young girls, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. My granddaughter, who uh, just uh, got accepted into college, she's uh, at this intense college where, uh, what's the name of this? Anyway, it's a liberal arts college. But I remember when she was little, she was sitting in the back of the car and we were going on a family outing. And Jeans um, Brown's song came on. It was, uh, It's a Man's World. You know, and that's really a heart-rending song. <laughs> And he was mm-hmm. singing away, and then I looked in the rearview mirror at her little eyes, thinking <laughs> to see that. She must have been about seven. So you could see the clocks turning in her head. You know what I mean? And then she said, <laughs> yeah. Grandma. And I went, what, honey? She said, is it really a man's world? And I said, well, honey, uh, this is an old song. <laughs> I said, this is an old nice. song, but... It has been a man's world, and I said now it's it's a men and women's world, and it's that's right. when I realized you know these kids are coming up and they're really giving this a lot of thought. Do I have a place mm-hmm. just as I am? Am I accepted just as I am? Because you know the female, about the age of ten, as you well know, her confidence goes way down. You know it drops and falls way off, and uh, it's a uh, it's painful to watch, but that's when I think the men have to step in, the fathers and uncles and the grandpas have to step in and help boost her and help her get her confidence enough to get it through the school system and get through the world and find her spot in it, you know. And I think part of this is is a healing. When I look at, at your book, it's a, it's a healing part. It's accepting the female, the goddess, the feminine, and uh, knowing that without... Uh, a female, you know, I had a real hard time with my ex about this because uh, he's a military man and uh, very, uh, well, a Vietnam veteran and actually disgruntled. <laughs> so he was saying something about women. I don't know what he was saying, but I remember we were at a coffee shop and I said, okay, buddy, listen, 
every woman in here in this room you're looking at right now either has had a baby, is going to have a baby, or is getting ready to have a baby. That's how you got here, okay? And that's how I explained it to him. He was horrified. (laughs) And why do you think he was horrified? Because he realized that he was not born from under a rock. Mm. (laughs) He was actually birthed into this world, and Mm -hmm. I think some people have a hard time realizing. Yes, yes. Right. I know. I know, but I'm just telling you, this is the way people think. You know, and well, yeah, uh, that, that's that's exactly right, and I I think it's you know we're so lost in this this like I said of an overmasculine grandiosity that we don't really as your yeah. examples perfectly illustrate you know we don't even imagine that we're born of woman into the world I mean that's a perfect perfect example of it and we all exactly. you know and that promotes a kind of a perfectionism and all this kind of nonsense. That is, uh, it's unhuman, and it makes uh, all of our lives uh, less enjoyable, and it takes us out of what's real, and and you know tortures us with our fantasies of what should be, might be, could have been, you know, and and we've got to break out of that trip, and you know the feminine is is part of the road there, you know, allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and feel feelings, and you know, be in our bodies and be in our hearts, and. You know, that doesn't mean being a fool. It doesn't mean dropping all this masculine stuff. It means taking a a courageous step forward uh, to that, you know, that vulnerable part of us that nature has given us. Yes, and and I I think that a strong uh, male, but I can't tell a male, you know, because I just don't, I just know what attracts women. It's a strong male that, that can handle uh, the cycle and the circle of what a woman lives through. I'm 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 sure men don't develop in a straight line, but women's biological life is like a circle. You know, and it goes mm-hmm. through days and goes through months and stuff like that. And I think, you know, it's ruled by the moon and the the, the roundness of the moon. It's all very mysterious when you really think of it like that. You know, Absolutely. and in a way, we're always reminded of nature. We're always reminded this is who we are, you know. We're, if we're we, creative if we pay, if we, Yeah, if we pay attention, and, you know, women's, obviously people will know, you know, women's cycles actually can't even, you know, sync up with the moon. And, again, it's about mm-hmm. seeing our ourselves in these mirrors of nature. We're part of nature, you know, and we've lost that. And I think, like you're saying, it's it's – we need these mirrors of nature to see truly who we are again. I so agree with that. And I also uh, think that we, when I was a kid, I was lucky enough, even though I lived in certain places in California and upstate New York, I was always either near the woods near the Hudson or, or out in the valley where they had the dam and all the little mountains over there. And I always found nature because I found, that I mean, so I would go into the. I don't know if you did this as a kid, but when I was a kid, I would go into the rows of the very, very soft earth where they were planting the corn. You know what I mean? And I would just go sit in there and get comfort mm-hmm. of sitting in these rows of, of the, in the loamy earth and just sitting under those uh, corn stalks. They were too green mm-hmm. to eat, but they were beautiful and they smelled good to sit in. You know, mm-hmm. and. I never mm-hmm. thought of like picking it and taking it out, but uh, 
I would go into, let's say, the neighbor's grape arbor and uh, sit under the grapes and eat those grapes and do all that stuff and just sit in there. And I felt that's, that was my saving grace, actually, was nature growing up as a kid. Because I always, uh, well, that's why I identified with your book, is I always identified with nature. And I feel like people are getting sick, like sick and to death because, they have no nature around them, and they have forgotten mm. what it smells like to even sit. They're, I don't even think the kids know where their food's coming from. Right. Yes. Or how beautiful it yeah. is when it grows off the vine. Yeah, well, and you know, this is the kind of stuff that we, you know, give up to some part with city living is is – you know, never, you know, our encounter with nature is so much less and there's a price that we're paying for that. And it's a psychological price, you know, which is less, you know, of that mirror of nature to understand who we are and more of a mirror of other people and human, you know, creations and technology is the way we understand ourselves. And, and, it, and there's a price to be paid for that, you know. Yeah, you know, I had a very odd idea that uh, I was thinking about Cain and Abel, and I remembered that because um, we were talking about greens and certain crop circles and crops and all that, and I remembered that Cain was the, the actually the cultivator of the earth, and he's the one who brought the grain forward. And I know your book made me think like this, okay? So like so then uh Cain is the one who brought the grain forward and it was and he was well since he was like a shyster, you know, didn't bring the best, he brought the second best to his heavenly father and that's why he uh had got a mark and he also was jealous of his brother who brought the best of his calf. Mm-hmm. You know, and just it's just strange that the cultivator is the one who uh it's the one who started the first murder. It's very odd. I don't, I don't, do you relate to that at all or think about that at all? I, I think in general, yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, there, there's a way that, you know, of course we kind of put the shadow and woman together, right, in the Western yeah. God image. we You know, we, we tar and, and feather the woman and nature and sexuality all in one go. And, and you know, perhaps at a certain point of our evolution, we needed to do that to kind of withdraw our energy from engagement with the, the instinctual pleasures of life and all that. But, you know, at this stage, we need that energy back. You know, we've, we've lost the instinct so much that, you know, that we're, we're, we're lifeless. You know, we, we need to be living with passion and in our hearts and in our bodies. So, you know, that's that's a lot of what I'm writing about. And that's a beautiful thing. And also, uh, you were uh, really uh, talking about how uh, the saints take place. Uh, this, there's a place even for saints and how they invoke either the water or the grain or, you know, all of this is, is a beautiful uh, ritual. And would you would you care to tell us, like, some of your spiritual beliefs? along these lines or? Well, I think I am, you know, I mean, I think I am really talking about what I believe spiritually. Um, You you know, I I think, you know, as I've been saying, I I think the primary spiritual illness of our time is lost in 
worship of the human and, um, you know, lost in the worship of our technology. And, you know, for me, the idea that there will be artificial intelligence is um, a projection from a sick place of illness. You know, there'll never be anything like human consciousness in a computer or a machine. You know, people are lost in these, you know, a computer is a really fancy jukebox. Okay. Yes. It's a it's yeah. it's a really fancy cart, you know. I mean, it, it does not carry the spark of life. It does not carry the spark of consciousness. And and you know, I think especially the really good um, way to look at this is stuff like synchronicity. I think really drives this home. And if you look at synchronicity, when I look at it, what I see very often, almost every time, is the presence of feeling. In synchronicities, so you know you break up with somebody and you run into them all over town. Um, you know a mother might have a feeling and know that their son or daughter is you know in danger on the other side of the world sailing or or something like that. Um, you know we all have these synchronicities in our lives, and when we look at them, what we find there very often is a feeling connection. Uh, uh, you know they're personal, uh, and so. If we live in a universe that that values these personal ties and usually is bringing forward synchronicity in a meaningful way, that's a very different worldview than the worldview that says, "Oh yeah, one day you know we'll build a computer and it will be just as conscious as you are." That's nonsense. That's a fantasy. That's a right. that's the that's a projection of a of a sickness in our Western culture that is lost in ourselves and in the masculine that, you know, imagines that our creations are the same as God's creations and, and they're not. And, you know, that's, that's where I'm at spiritually. And that's, you know, this is what I'm preaching. So. That's right. And, uh, the, uh, just to think that they think artificial intelligence will have a soul or a spirit or love or, I think that that you're right. Uh, people have gotten so far away what it means to love. I mean, when they're hit with love, then they then they kind of snap out of it. I think when you get that thunderbolt of love, whatever mm-hmm. it is, I think then it alters the brain. But other than that, you know, I mean, you can well, kind of uh, distance yourself from all of the mess. Yeah. Well, and it, it, what they're really doing is they're 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 taking anything sacred or magical or mysterious or soulful out of their view of humanity, you know, and it's a very weird thing because at the same time, it's on an unconscious level, unconsciously, it's really privileging the human. And on another level, it's stripping everything spiritual, spiritual or soulful or meaningful or heart based out of it. And, you know, that's the nature of our time is expressed right there, you know. Um, you know, we just had the holidays and we have, um, you know, Thanksgiving has come and gone. And how is Thanksgiving commemorated in the U.S.? Well, how incredibly psychologically and spiritually direct is the mess when you see that Thanksgiving, yeah. the festival for giving thanks, is directly associated with an orgy of consumerism. Now, in in Jungian psychology, we we look at these things and we see, 
you know, mater, materialism, matter. That word, materialism, comes from the Latin word mater, which is also where we get mother and matter and materialism. That's the same root. And so we understand in Jungian psychology that materialism is a compulsive shadow expression of Mm. our desire to be connected with the miracle of life, to be truly grateful, to be seeing ourselves in this broader, meaningful web of nature and feeling and heart. You know, we, we, we have no connection to that, so we compulsively, you, you know it's a shadow expression, an, uncom, uh, an unconscious expression of something when it's expressed compulsively. And there's, I mean, that's the number one thing, of, you know, of America, I'm sad to say, is that it's compulsive materialism is, is the defining thing, and it's really too bad, but it shows you what the problem is. And the problem is no connection to nature inside of ourselves and feeling in the material of life and the archetypal feminine, the goddess. So what would that look like? It would just mean being, being real, being, having a creative play with, with um, nature for yourself, whatever works for you, but involves and evokes that. So, you know, one thing I write about in the, the book, in the chapter that you mentioned there, chapter four, mm-hmm. antique pageantry was the weaving of corn dollies. So, our forefathers in Europe, if you're a European ancestry person, and in many other cultures around the world, there's traditions that would honor the the harvest, that would take the last sheaves of the harvest and weave a, a person, sometimes they called it a baba, and they would place that, you know, as many people still probably in the country may, may have these even, is they would put that, uh, a wreath or a, a dolly, and place it in a barn or above the hearth, somewhere that that really you know was venerated and was central and you know that was a a real thing they did you know they 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 wove that with their hands with their fingers and they 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 made a connection and you know now we aren't making that connection but here is this other force whatever it may be that's coming back to kind of weave something similar on the ground you know weave it in these crop circles and i think Again, to me, this is all all fits together. You know. Yeah, it does fit together. And, you know, I do love the synchronicity of it all, as I find that uh, the world is uh, becoming more and more interconnected through this synchronicity that it's like a, a woven uh, plan. And it's a beautiful one because we all keep bumping into each other from the far reaches of the earth, yet we still run into each other and talk and discuss our excitement over um, the spiritual things because, you know, my work is uh, actually uh, dealing with the dark side and it's uh, it, it's with, uh, when, you put it, when you put it that way, I actually was just having a discussion with someone and about this dark side thing is that mostly... Uh, people that I'm involved with are incarcerated due to greed and wanting more and mm. uh, why the stacks, because I've asked doctors, I've asked lawyers, they've all been my clients and uh, I'm a substance abuse counselor for federal prisoners. And uh, when we talk about it, I went, okay, so I talked to doctors, you know, that in lawyers, you know, the stack is already high, right? Stack of money, right? So I mm-hmm. say, I ask them, 
why? Just why? You already had enough. But they say they're obsessed with a bigger stack. They need more. They need more and more. Like there's a bottomless pit there. And it's frightening that uh, when they were talking about it, and I said, you know, I, I really do understand that we need to pay our rent, we need to pay the car off, we need to eat and buy food and everything. I said, but uh, what you're talking about is that you can be bought for just this green money that means nothing. You know, it means, actually, it's so harmful that it's destroying people. It's going through like a, it's wrecking people's lives in so many ways. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example. It's, it's that materialism. Yeah, it's a compulsive need for the shadow expression of that thing in life that they're not getting for real. You know, that connection with nature, exactly. maybe it's love. You know. Yeah, exactly. And I think it really right. comes down to the heart. It really comes down to the heart in a lot of cases like that, too. You know, really having connection through feeling with other people and with the world. Yes, it is. And um, when you think that, you know, wanting more, it's really hard to formulate my thought on this, but, you know, it's it's showing the shadow self, but it's also displaying a, a deep desire for more. But since, but since, they're not getting the essence, which means the spirituality or that beautiful nature and everything else. This looks like a bottomless pit. It's, it's not going to be satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. It's empty. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's can right. Hear, can, you, can you hear me? This, I can hear uh, Okay. Um, so you have, uh, you know, your book contains many scientific facts and explanations, but it also relies heavily on stories and myths and symbolism, which I really enjoyed. Um, do you seem to be the, the point of view is superior to another when discussing the ideas about the natural world? What do you mean? Uh, what I mean is, uh, are you, like, uh, specifically re- religious-wise, do you sound, when I read your stuff, it's like you're really encompassing uh, most religions. And you specifically, how is this related to you spiritually? Well, um, yeah, it certainly is related to me personally, spiritually. Like I said, I think it's a, an expression you know, it's an expression of my spiritual questions that, you know, that I'm living with and exploring and with some of the answers that I've found to be satisfying. So, you know, a long time ago, um, I heard a, a Jungian woman speaking in San Francisco. Her name is Anne Belford Ulanov, and she's quite a wonderful Jungian and, and certainly someone that I regard today as one of the best, if not the best living Jungian writer and and I really respect her uh, writing and her journey and her place that she's in spiritually. And I'm, I'm very picky. And so for me, I, I find her, what she writes and where she's coming from, to, to really hit the nail on the head for me. But 
one of the things that she said that really um, hit home for me is that she said that today, you know, at our time, spirit is down into matter and into what matters and into, you know, the living our questions. Um, you know, we want an answer, but we can't quite get one. And so we have to sit with this not knowing. And, you know, she was talking about that um, to do with 9-11. She was on the Faith and Doubt at 9-11 PBS show. And I've also seen her, you know, talk about that in person as well. And, and there, there's a satisfaction in that for me. There, there's something that fits right and feels right about um, where we're at in our world. So I'm just, you know, I'm looking for someone uh, like Jung or and Yulanov that have carved out um, a satisfying expression of what it means to be alive today that I can fit with it. And Anne, Bel- Anne Belford Yulanov is a very serious Jungian, but she's also a very devoted Christian. And I think for me, one of the great things about Jungian psychology is that, you know, you can be any faith, or no faith, or, or whatever, and still find uh, sense in Jung's writing because he's a natural excavator of the of the psyche. You know, he looked at people's dreams and just reported what he saw there and tried to put it together in meaningful ways. Um, you know, for me as a Jungian, you know, I see someone like Freud as very much a theoretician. You know, he's coming up with yeah. theories. And for me, I don't, I don't believe Jung is a theoretician. I believe he's a natural, empirical psychologist who was looking at what we see in the psyche and dreams and in, in our waking life. And so, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I guess spiritually I'm a Jungian, and uh, you know that's where I'm coming from. But I'm coming from it because I, I found a way of approaching the world in our time that, that fits for me and it makes sense for me and and allows me to explore questions in a, in a satisfying way. And, uh, uh, you know, the very first thing that I, that I, the very first spark that you were asking me about this earlier, you know, the real, real root for me of young and crop circles in this book is actually something that I, that I didn't get to in this book, but it might in future books, but you, you, I mean, nonetheless, it's, it's um, this book needs to be written to get where we're going here. But there mm-hmm. was something I was, something I was reading uh, Jung wrote a book called Answer to Job. Oh, yeah, he puts the Western. Book. Yeah, it's a good one. I'm glad you read it. Yeah, so he it. puts the Western. He puts the Western God image on the couch there, and he looks at the interactions between uh, Yahweh, the Hebrew God, and Abraham and Job and others in the Bible. And when you look at that interaction, what you see there is that the human character is the one leading the, the development morally. You know, God is not generally in those, um, uh, you know, at least Yahweh is not directly pushing for the more humane answer. For example, you know, when when um, uh, Gomorrah is going to be, you know, demolished by God, you know, he says, well, what if I can find 100 good people and, you know, they have a dialogue and God gets them down to 10. But throughout these series of interactions, and especially with Job, you know, you, you really see um, that it's the human character that's trying to make God uh, more humane. And what Jung drew from that was that, you know, and he was trying to talk about this psychologically rather than spiritually or transpersonally, but of course, you know, 
that's a whole other question. But anyway, his conclusion is that you know that the dignity the dignity of human morality rests on our efforts to be moral being a working out of God's shadow that the reason that there's evil in the world is that God has a shadow and that human activity and the you know um you know the kind of the incarnation of of the spiritual in the humane and our struggle to do the right thing through that is a working out of God's shadow. And, you know, I come from a background in philosophy, so I had looked at, you know, why is there evil quite a bit, and I'd never had a good answer. And I don't mm. think you'll find a good answer in philosophy right. uh, for that. Now, as a, you know, as a, as a Christian person or, or someone like that, you might say, well, beyond our, our worldly experience, of God, you know, there's another level at which God has got, you know, has got the whole plan and everything's worked out, and that's beautiful. But that's not part of our day-to-day reality. You know, like, you know, like the old time hymns say, you know, there's no heaven down here below. You know, so in our experience, we don't get to that level. There might be another level where that's true, and that's fine. People can believe that spiritually. Um, but in the working of the world and in the struggles that we're forced to deal with personally right now, every day in our real lives, um, that answer that, you know, that that we're left to work on this problem, uh, you know, this nature of the dynamic we're in between God and God's shadow and our actions working out that that tension, to me that's satisfying. And it really, it, it, it gives you a theoretical basis for the dignity of humanity, and I think, you know, in a time where we're 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 very lost in, um, you know, secular answers and in answers that kind of lose the the majesty of of the world, I think uh, views like Young's that are open to a bigger picture are, are healthy, and and um, I don't see, um, you know, much in there that isn't. Um, something good and something good that most religious people, I think, uh, if they're willing to be flexible, uh, are going to, you know, you know, find something they can relate to. And uh, like I said, Anne, Anne Belford Ulanoff is a great example of that for me. You know, she's a Christian and a Jungian, and, and she's keeping her questions open, you know, and I think that's, a, for me, a, a good approach and a good way to be. Yeah, because I get asked a lot about the problem of suffering, and I do refer back to Job, and that um, actually sometimes God is, and what I got out of the ending of all that is that um, there is a divinity, and then there's reason for suffering, and that it causes a rebirth. Because remember, uh, Job lost everything, his crops, his Every, everything, his mm-hmm. family, his wife, mm-hmm. and everything. And in the end, it was restored to him many, many times over. But it's mm-hmm. almost exactly what happened to Jesus, that mm-hmm. um, he was crushed under, yet he came back. And then uh, that's why we have uh, Christianity, but also have a faith that uh, that we will be have salvation, you know, in the end. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, that he was, you know, as part of the harvest of the whole thing. And uh, 
This yeah. is uh, really deep stuff, uh, Gary. It's just because uh, <laughs> <laughs> we could well, talk forever good, about it's it, and it's just a, it's beautiful. Sure. Yeah, it's beautiful because I think uh, when I found out, actually, uh, just just odd, as somebody I was uh, I was a hairdresser back in the day, and I was uh, cutting this cop's hair and. Uh, he was talking to me about this little place along up north along the coast called Cambria. And uh, I was so attracted to that place and going up north and traveling along the coast, you know, that I've gone there so many times that people think I live there. You know, because I go to, you know, you can, let's say, Veterans Day, go up there, bring your chair with you, and they'll have a big barbecue out there, you know, and be part of the family, you know what I mean? But uh, that's where Carl Young held a lot of his... Uh, classes and uh they all got together up there i was just mm. shocked that you know that those of us that, that follow this are also somehow traveling the same path that synchronistic path that we talk about we're kind of attracted to the same places you kind of go i don't know if you've ever been up to that sure. area i, I have so been beautiful. to Cambria. you have been to Cambria? Uh, absolutely. oh absolutely yeah what do you think <laughs> I like it. I like that. I, bought, I, I love bought, that I bought place. a piece of art there. You did? Yes, I did. I in Cambria. Thinking, yeah, they got a lot of galleries. You know, I really, I really love the the art up there. And that one woman has her art gallery uh, right near the ocean. Um, she had a house right there. I don't know if you ever bought it from there, but she was kind of awesome. Where, what, where did you buy that painting? Because everybody paints remember. in Cambria, by the way. I don't know uh-huh. if you know that. Everybody paints up there. Uh, <laughs> there so they got the go. good art, the bad art, but it's in the window. You know, and I just can't <laughs> get over it. And then you go to a restaurant and you look up at the fixtures and it's all, ham, ham, you know, mouth blown by the guy across the street. I mean, it's a, right. it's a beautiful spot. And uh, Carl Young actually and uh, his crew were up there uh, doing a lot of these conversations. And stuff. Hmm. I didn't. I didn't know that till later in life, and I just thought, no wonder why I keep going up there. Because <laughs> to me, it's real. It's not like he's dead. Right. I don't know if you feel that way, but it feels real to me. Well, it certainly feels that it's continuing, that it's as fresh and relevant as ever. Right. Okay. So then, this is another point too that that you have brought up. Uh, why do the mysteries like crop circles cause many people to experience fear? And how do you think fear plays a role in how crop circles are received? Well, I think that's a great question. I, I think, you know, if you haven't hit fear, um, you're, you know, you haven't begun. Um, to really put yourself into the crop circle mystery, there should be a little moment at least of some fear because it's you have to acknowledge that there's something out there that is greater than we are and that there's definitely another out there. And, you know, when I was in England the first time, I definitely had, you know, that kind of scary feeling. And that's how you, you know, know you're really touching the, the, the truth of something else being out there. And, um, you know, it sounds, sounds like the X-Files here. Um, mm. But there's definitely there's definitely something out there. Um, so you know you have to have that moment of of fear because it's it's like um, you know in close encounters there's the, there's 
it's a, I think, a great movie. And one of the great things about it is it gives you the sense of sort of um, scope. You know, Jung has a great word. It's called numinous. You know, there's a numinosity, a kind of powerful magic or uh, an awe that 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 comes from uh, experiencing the, these forces. And, you know, we've, we've tucked away all of that kind of wonder and awe inside ourselves. We need to get it back out into the world where it belongs because not all of the, the wonder in the world is, is human. You know, there's other forces out there, including nature and whatever other creatures and beings are around. So, um, you know, the fear is a reaction to realizing that, um, you know, we're just, uh, we're vulnerable, we're small, you know, we're not this puffed up kind of, you know, rah-rah version of who we think we are. And, you know, in the, the movie Signs, you know, the crop circle movie Signs with Mel Gibson, yeah. <clears throat> there's a moment in that film where they are standing around in their pajamas in the crop circle and the kid says, something like, you know, oh, we're all alone, you uh-huh. know, out here, out here. And and I I like that movie Signs because, you know, he had to make a thriller. The director needed to make a thriller. So he had to have, you know, action and the bad guy and all that. So he makes the aliens that are making crop circles that bad guy. And that's our shadow. That's our fear of, of this other, which I think has not, there's, I don't think there's really anything to be afraid of in crop circles. I think it's part of the process but I don't think in the end fear is where we're going to be. But that movie does such a great job because, you know, he he makes Mel Gibson's character, of course, you know, be a priest who's lost his faith and who's lost his wife in a car accident, an accident of human invention, you know, an an accident of human, uh, you know, machines. And, and so this priest has lost his faith, and it's all about his questions of what he believes. And then here you have the crop circles on the other side. And, of course, he splits off our shadow and puts that in these angry aliens, you know, and and all that because he has to make a movie. But you see the two halves of the crop circle experience, you know, our questions about what we believe and our fear. And like I said, I think the fear has to come at a certain point because you have to admit, whoa, there's really something going on out there. And to really sit in front of that, you know, the, like that big ship in Close Encounters, you know, there's a bit of fear there. It's a big thing. And, and whatever is on the other side of crop circles is certainly equally big. And um, I think we desperately need that. I, I think we really need to have a time where we see that there's something in the world other than us because, you know, it's our, we're so hooked in ourselves that, you know, we're, we're, we're driving our planet over the edge out of our, you know, lost um, worldview in ourselves and our, you know, we're so caught up in our, our own trips that we're losing what we're doing to the world around us. And I think seeing, you know, the reality of other life would, would help us to get over that and, and to have some awe and to, to sort of become a little humbler as well. I think would yeah. be, would be really helped by that. Yeah, uh that's one of my favorite movies and uh the 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 most wonderful part of, to me of that movie is is it's filled with synchronicities whether the remember the alien had the poison but the kid had the asthma attack and then uh it was filled with meaning and then the baseball bat on the 
the wall, and and he was, and Mel Gibson's character was, uh, for this for people who haven't seen Signs, but the uh, the the character he was mad because his wife was killed in a, a terrible freak accident, and she was alive long enough to make a few statements, you know, and one of them is "Swing away, Meryl," and. Uh, when the shock of him turning around looking at that bat and then looking back at the alien and then getting the bat and cracking his head, well, you know what I mean, the water thing. All of it was all about synchronicity along with crop circles and everything else and aliens. And uh, it's a profound look, and I watched it, I don't know how many times I've seen it, about 20 times or more, a lot. Well, I like what he did there, as I said, you know, to, to have both those things in the movie. It really brings it to what it is. You know, we've, we've got to um, have our own spiritual questions and bring them, you know, bring them with us, bring them into the room. Yeah. And then he got his faith back, uh, for those of you that don't know. He did get his faith back because of all the synchronicity and uh, his boy's life was saved and things like that. It's just a very beautiful movie. It's kind of, you can easily, easily shrug it off, you know, that, oh, it's just, it's just a movie, but I love that movie. And I love the part where they were looking in the book and they were um, they were actually seeing the house as them, you know, that that's their house. Weird, huh? Mm. Anyway, mm. let's go back to your book. Now I'm in the reality of the psyche, yep. and uh, this is on page 188, and if you don't mind me, uh, reading about the scarab story, or do you want sure. to tell the scarab story? Oh, you go right ahead. Okay. Go right ahead. It says, uh, okay, and uh, it's about synchronicity, and I think we all have feel it. And uh, for my listeners, I think all of us uh, that are attracted to this kind of thing is uh, we see the beauty of it. And to me, you know, I, I cry over it a lot of, with happiness because it's just. Uh, Anyway, this is a story that uh, is, is very beautiful. It says, uh, this is Carl Young sitting with his client. I was sitting opposite her one day with my back to the window, and she had had an impressive dream the night before in which someone had given her a golden scarab, a costly piece of jewelry. While she was telling me this dream, I heard something behind me gently tapping on the window. I turned around and saw that it was a fairly large flying insect that was knocking against the window pane from outside in an obvious effort to get into the dark room. I opened the window immediately and caught the insect in the air as it flew in. It was a scarabee beetle, or a common rose chafer. Anyway, whose golden green color most nearly resembles that of a golden scarab. I handed the beetle to my patient with the words, Here is your scarab. And then he says, what you're writing is, with this experience, Young writes, as her natural being could burst through the army of her animus possession and the process of transformation could at last begin to move. Here is a powerful effect on the breakdown of life's usual causality and its introduction to this meaningful synchronicity offered healing. What a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. What a gift, too. And that's just the way it comes to us, Our, our... are little gifts that probably mean nothing to everybody else, but they mean something, you know, to you. Yeah, in a deep way. yeah, that's right. That's and then right. And you only handed it to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and he handed it to her, and the patient was a very, very rational-minded woman, and she was caught in, in 
a kind of um, an over-rationality that kept her really out of life. And here was this thing that Jung would talk about as being irrational or a-causal. It's not, you know, A plus B. You cannot draw a causal direct line between that beetle and the, and the window. You have to look with the meaningful eye to, to see this the beetle tapping at the window and then here's your scarab. And, you know, that at that right moment when that happened, it did allow uh, the transformation to be begin. And I, I think that's that is there for all of us. You know, that is what paying attention to the synchronicity in our life is about. You know, a lot of people ask me when they have a synchronicity because I, I just uh, hosted a big conference on synchronicity. Oh, I um, know. <laughs> uh, Where can we yeah, find a tape and, uh, of that or something? Well, if you go to the website matterpsyche.net, there's all the videos. Uh, there's a link there on the videos page. And you can go and see previews of all the videos, and you can order all the videos, and they're they're fantastic. They're fantastic. We had such an incredible world class group of some of the best people in the world on synchronicity and the extension of consciousness beyond the body. But as I was saying, you know, people ask me all the time, um, you know, what does the synchronicity mean when they have a synchronicity? And so many times when people bring that to me, you know. I say, you know, I'm not going to look at that personally for you because they can work on that personally for themselves and what the personal meaning might be. But I, I try to direct them in general to think about, you know, the fact that this really meaningful, extremely unusual synchronicity happened for them just as being that the universe cares about them. Yeah. You know, as I said with the feeling piece, you we really have to get out of this idea that we have about the world that it's this you know sort of masculine sterile place and back to this understanding that we see in synchronicity of what if the world cares about us what if the world wants us to be present with our heart and feeling and, and feel all these things that are going on around us and um, that's a very different worldview and I, I do believe that we live in a heart-shaped world but our own view of that has lost it you know um, of course, many of the traditions that are bringing back the the feminine are about that. You know, the return of the Black Madonna and the the Virgin in Latin American and Mexican cultures. You know, there are other parts of the world where people are maybe more free. Um, you know, they seem to really go for this feminine stuff right away. Well, why? Because they feel and they know that that they need some image of God that includes their heart and includes the broken pieces of them. You know, there's, there's um, a tradition in the Mexican culture and I'm, I suspect in other cultures as well, where you have what's called the open virgin and you open up her, the statue of her body and inside are all these little hands and arms and feet and, you know, and, and that's to, to represent our woundedness, our brokenness. And, you know, the masculine, trip that we're on just expects us all to be perfect all the time and you know if, if something goes wrong in your life then it's your fault I mean that's the whole uh, new age kind of law of attraction manifesting stuff to me is just a, a new age version of the same masculine disease you know we're not just going to get our thoughts right and all become millionaires tomorrow I mean that's just a sick paradigm you know um you know, I think there's truth to what is the nature of our feeling relationship with the world and then how, you know, 
perhaps were getting, you know, uh, uh, sustained by the world or, or something more humble and more heart-based version of that has some truth as, you know, you, we would have seen that talked about in the Tao and the I Ching and the Chinese culture thousands of years ago, that same struggle to be in the right emotional relationship to the world. You know, the law of uh, attraction and the manifesting folks and all that, they they tend to, you know, overemphasize the consciousness and the mind, and it's not just about getting your thoughts straight, and you're not going to will the shadow out of you. Um, mm. So, a- anyway, I, I think that's along the, the same lines. But, you know, for me, synchronicity shows us this this open-hearted world that, that loves us, and that's such a different view, and, and so many people in the world are called to to that, and I think synchronicity is constantly tapping us on our shoulder to remind us about the the larger, more important, bigger, bigger picture. It sure does, and uh, going back to your book, and you discuss some theories in the nature of the universe in your your book, and how how can this very broad and grand theories teach us more about ourselves? And how does it relate back to something as specific as crop circles? Do you want to ask me that first part again? Tell the first part. Yeah, again? is it that you're, you know, you have the theories of nature of the universe. You you really are expressing, you know, so many different ones and. And they're very beautifully written, and I advise everybody to go out and get this book. And uh, especially is interested in, uh, you know, getting in deeper, getting close to nature, and uh, the thinking as cross circles as a symbol of like something that we need to nurture us. And then, um, how, what does this teach us about ourselves? Mm, yeah. Um, well, it certainly, you know, for me, you know, gives us that mirror of nature and that mirror of, you know, there also is the, um, you know, the mirror of kind of the extraterrestrial. What would it be like to know that there's another kind of a living being or whatever form they may take or, you know, whatever, um, you know, uh, what would that mirror be look like, you know, to see ourselves seen through the eyes of another species, you know. Um, you know, crop circles are so interesting. They they have this natural element and this circular element. And you know, we didn't talk much about the circle, but Jung was saying that um, you know what he calls the self archetype is that piece of us that is the biggest you know quality of who we are. That the connection of the unconscious and the conscious and nature and human and spiritual in the world, and that the self archetype that we see in circles and mandalas. Um, that is always an image that's looking for balance. You know, and here we are so unbalanced in this particular direction mm-hmm. and in the particular direction that points away from grain and points away from the earth and wants us to go up, up, up. And so, um, you know, I, I think that, that there's a way that crop circles show us, uh, you know, a beautiful and an artistic uh, reflection of our ourselves and of nature and of the world that we're a part of and, you know, draws us back into that and it does it in a beautiful way. And, you know, it's also really um, beautiful and wonderful to think about the fact that here are these beings that are making crop circles that are clearly trying to communicate something to us. Well, 
how wonderful and how meaningful it is that there's some agency out there that does want to send us this message and it's doing you know doing that and doing it in a beautiful way in a way that uses sacred geometry and you know it moves our hearts you know that's tremendously powerful to think about yeah, it really is. And for Jungians, I think art plays a, a big part of art and uh, music and nature and all of it plays a big part uh, in your life, really. And um, how have you found, personally, how do you find your space in nature? What, do you, what are you doing to stay close to the earth? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I like to get outside. I like to be out in nature and go for a walk and go for a hike and... Um, you know, I haven't been doing that as much as I usually uh, usually do. So, um, yeah, so that's that's my usual path. But I haven't been up to it as much as uh, I'd like to be. But you know, that that's primarily it. Just trying to get out there in the summertime. I'll swim, but uh, outside, yeah. it's just in the wintertime, walking around and um, you know, getting yourself. You know, we st- spend so much time in our lives now staring at screens that it's yeah. it's nice to. To uh, not have your eyes looking at a screen for for a few hours, you know. Yeah, it does. And then um, let me see that. Um, so now, okay. So in the in in ancient history, and uh, you know, the female form was worship. It was given its respect. It was giving its acknowledgement. And it was all wrapped up in uh, rituals and everything. And then uh, through time, uh, there was some, I think it's like a darker side that took over and decided that, uh, you know, that we're going to actually move away from this now because uh, I don't know if they were enjoying it too much or it wasn't civilized or what was going on. And then it went on to uh, the rejection of the female form or object, object, I don't know, I can't speak, or object, turning women into an object, and then, uh, and this is a whole huge, big uh, thing to ask, you know, but how can, uh, what's your advice for a woman, a woman bringing up daughters or a young woman that may be listening, how does she embrace herself in the, and actually uh, go Embrace the feminine archetype and um, learn from what mm. you're saying because I know there's a young woman out there that, <laughs> or her with her children, would like to, you know, embrace this more. Well, but a lot of women well, reject it themselves. A... Thank you. Go ahead. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And that's part of the thing that people really need to understand is that, um, you know, I'm not talking about the matriarchy and the patriarchy and men and women. I'm talking about the archetypal feminine and the archetypal masculine. And women can be lost in the archetypal masculine. And because our culture is predominantly lost in archetypal masculine, many women are lost in it too. It's not just men doing this to women. Uh, there's a lot of men out there that are living, you know, lives that are predominantly, you know, very heart-filled and, you know, living in a, a lot of archetypal feminine values. So, I mean, this is going to sound funny, but I think the first thing I would say is read the book. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I've had people say, you know, that there's a really good explanation of the archetypal masculine and the archetypal feminine in this book. And then I I think you can appreciate um, the good sides and the dark sides of both these because they both have shadows. 
you know, nature built everything to have two sides. And, um, you know, I, I think the book, uh, it's one of the compliments that I've liked the most about the book is people saying that it, and this is from people that have read a lot of Jungian stuff too. They said that, mm-hmm. you know, this is the, uh, one of the best, you know, explanations of the masculine and feminine that they've read. And I think if a woman wants to understand that, I think I do do a pretty good job of really showing you the kind of height and the the basics of the feminine uh, in the goddess mythology and the, the top of expression as wisdom and embodied insight. And so I think that's a, a good place to start. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, all of our lives are so complicated and everything's tricky and you can't really give people too much advice, but... Um, I think that's one good place to start. And then, you know, um, yeah, it's it's a lot to say. You know, it's, like you said, it's a big question to chew on. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, understanding, I, I think, too, one of the things that happens in our culture is that we imagine that there's no history, you know, that we're, we're not coming from anywhere and everything's new. And I think especially for people that are that are younger today, you know, maybe in their 20s or something, that the, the, there's this imagination that it's all just popped out of nowhere, but there's, you know, psyche does not exist in a vacuum and nature does not exist in a vacuum. You know, we've come from somewhere. There are traditions of, of belief and mythology and worship that if you understand them, you know that there's other ways of of, of seeing the world than the, the one that, you know, you're given today on, on TV and on the Internet or whatever, that there's older, deeper paths, and I, I think the book kind of lays that out and and gives you um, food for thought on all those things. And I think um, embodiment, too, is a big piece of what I talk about in the book. And, you know, crop circles are physical. They're, they live in the real world, and we can eat them. Um, and so, you know, they, you know we, we've got to learn the art, all of us men and women, of both having insight, being interested in the truth, but also bringing all of that energy back into our bodies and into the real situations in our real lives. And and that's, a, of course, a really deep process and will have work so differently okay. for so many people. Well, um, I just, you know, I have to advise everybody. That's what... I was I wanted you on here because when I saw even the title of your book, it had it just rang uh, a tone of truth with me. And then uh, reading it is uh, just uh, it's just amazing. And uh, do you mind me asking how old you are? <laughs> Come I'm, on. Uh, I'm forty-three. You're forty-three. You know you're a beautiful age for a man, and I think that. For you to come to all this, and then uh, usually, uh, to me, what I've observed is uh, it's from like an older man, like you're almost like an older soul that has the courage actually to breach the subject and talk about women in such a fearless way. I just want to congratulate you on that. You know, it takes some doing. And then um, also that, <laughs> that uh, you know, Carl Jung just felt that, you know, every a uh, very feminine female has a male soul, and then the opposite is true, that every masculine man seems to have a female soul, and that nothing mm-hmm. is more attractive than a person that embraces themselves in that way and that can actually mm-hmm. understand a woman. Nothing nothing sexier to me. 
but I'm old, you know what I mean? But so I'm just saying I'm more vintage. I'm more a vintage version. And I can tell you that uh, a lot of, of men have lost this trait of inner strength that sort of knows a woman can look at her and appreciate her, you know what I mean? And without uh, making a ton of demands, you know, you would, you would attract a woman. If you look at a woman like that, you know, you would just ordinarily just attract a million of them, you know what I mean? But what's happening is, uh, you know, this shut-off with, this shut-offness and this coldness and uh, the removal from nature that actually is happening to a lot of young women still to this day. You know what I mean? That um, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, I'm, I guess I am somewhat uh, talking about the way uh, the women are presenting themselves, but also uh, being uncomfortable with their own self. You know, we have a long way to go with that as women to just accept ourselves as we are, but also uh, enjoy the men as they are. You know, there's a lot of strength in that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that came up from the, your previous question as well as this one is that, um, you know, and thank you for what you said. I, I really appreciate that um, for the compliments. Um, you know, and I do get that a lot, you know, that, that it's powerful for women to hear what I'm saying through a man's voice. And um, yeah. and so, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be able to do that. And um you know, as I've been led here, you know, through this work to be saying these things, so, and through my own experience. And, of course, I was raised by, you know, strong women, so, you know, that's part of where I'm coming from, too. But um, I, I think, too, is that one of these things politically and culturally that's going on is, you know, we have to be able to include the feminine in our political, cultural, social values and in the leadership level. So on the one level, you, know, you could say feminism and, you know, getting women barriers to women, you know, in work and in, you know, the political process and in other places, you know, having that all brought down is, is good, obviously. Mm-hmm. The next level for me is when we can bring feminine values into politics into leadership, into yeah. uh, not, not, not simply adapting women to look like men and act like men and then, you know, now you get to succeed. I mean, that's, not, that's, that's moving backwards almost, you know, in a certain way. Um, you know, what we need is the feminine values to be on equivalent level with masculine values. So, you know, that's the challenge of the daughters of, you know, today and tomorrow is, you know, what would that be like? Not mm. just, you know, equivalent kind of opportunity if you're the right kind of woman and who kind of fits the mold. You know, what about, you know, valuing connection, valuing the heart on a on a political level, on a world level? I mean, I think you see the seeds of that discussion in some of the, the political questions that are kind of on the outskirts today, but tomorrow will be at the center, so... That's the you know for the for the mother that wants to bring up the daughter you know with this in mind, what would it be like to have feminine values, whatever you know your version of those are, and I describe in the book what I think those are, have them just as valued as masculine values, and it's a tricky thing, and of course both of these have to work together to have a whole person and to have a healthy psychology, but our society is so skewed 
you know, in favor yeah. of masculine values, that we, we have to really give those values a time of day, and it's um, it's something we each have to do individually, but I think that's a, yeah. the cultural question. That's one that came up, you know, from your, your previous question as well as this one. Yes. Um, you know, it just, uh, you know, I just had a thought about this, of of how, you know, the big argument has been in, uh, like a stereotypical, you know, past uh, that the the woman is subservient and the man is a boss and all sort of other stuff. And then when she goes nuts and he's screaming, man, you're crazy, you're crazy, but he's the one who drove her nuts. So it's like, what the, like how could, you know, people, you know, find this balance when we're so fresh out. I was born in the 50s. I actually was born in 52 in July. And, uh, to step out of one world and step into this 2000s, you know, it hasn't been easy, but it's been mm-hmm. in my, I actually had my midlife crisis at 60, and two years later, I am more comforted by what I have learned in the last two years, that the rest of my life can actually depend on it. Because for uh, for myself, I'll speak for myself as a woman, the path I was on died. It was gone. It's gone. It was taken away from me. Anything that I had a delusion. Oh, life is like this. You buy a house, and then the kids all grow up, and then you have your house to be comforted, you know, by the two of you and live your house out, life out, and you're going to retire and maybe sell your house and then go, go to the Bahamas. I don't know. You know, it didn't turn mm-hmm. out anything like that. So... Uh, through one uh, terrifying episode after another, God created a new life for me. So I wanted to tell uh, those of you that are over 60 even, that as a female that's new to this world, to a new kind of world, you know, you can actually start a whole new life. And and now when I saw the one possibility ended, I literally saw it end. And now... The possibilities are limitless. I never thought that was going to happen. Mm. It's a shock. I'm sure. I'm, I'm telling you, life goes on. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and it gets better, and it doesn't go away, and it uh, gets beautiful, and, you know, then we go meet our great maker, you know, in the sky eventually, but... I got a lot of out of your book, and you as a person, you know, I really admire you and uh, thank you for thank all you. your your introspective work because you're you're really uh, one of a kind, there, Gary. <laughs> thank you, thank you so <laughs> you much. You are because there's not many like you, and then you have actually, you know, one a person, you know, everybody pick up this book, you know, it's it's uh, amazing. And uh, I got mine from Amazon, and thank you, Gary, so much for sending it over here. And then you can, it's available readily. I put the links, actually, on the show page. And um, could you tell us what are your websites are to get a hold of you? Sure, yeah. Well, the website, the main website for the book is circles. Dot net. So it's a young and crop net, And there's a Facebook page, uh, Young and Crop Circles, uh, on Facebook.com. 
And my personal website for my writing is gsboboroff.com, gsboboroff.com, and that's where you can find me. And that's right. And then uh, you just had that synchronicity symposium, and I did see mm-hmm. the pictures of it. And if there's any, is there any way that we can watch it on YouTube or anything? Uh, is there anything there's out about little, it? Or? Yeah, there's little clips on YouTube. I think we just put out um, uh, Rick Tarnas's entire um, one-hour talk on synchronicity is on YouTube right now. If you go to matterpsyche.net and then to our videos page it takes you through to the place that has all the previews and the videos to buy and it was tremendous we had Rupert Sheldrake we had Graham Hancock we had Richard Tarnas we had Dr. Jim Tucker from the University of Virginia Um, we had Marilyn Schlitz we had Dr. Stephen Eisenstadt from Pacifica the founder of Pacifica Uh, Jill Purse it was it was really amazing and um, you know, people really went away with their life change because they realized that, you know, consciousness isn't what happens between our ears. Consciousness is this big field of the whole planet, at least, and that there's a way that we're connected to each other in our hearts and in our minds. And, it's, uh, you know, the, the world is bigger than we've imagined it. And it's quite profound to see the scientific evidence for that and the objective uh, proof for the extension of consciousness beyond the body that we talked about at the conference. And, you know, hopefully we'll do another one next year. And please go ahead and, and check the videos out and enjoy it. It's it's really beautiful stuff. I mean, everybody is so tremendous in their work and so grounded. And um, it was a real honor to present all those folks for people. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's so beautiful to me because uh, people that uh, – are getting involved in this, or to me, are the their actual salt of the earth that are actually bringing that uh, lovely uh, richness back. You know what I mean? Because we have like uh, I don't know, kind of sucked up and dried everything out that's so plush and gorgeous about our earth and experiences and art and music and the care about each other and also the good old discussion, which is so rich, you know, and beautiful to do, uh, you know, and you just got, you guys are just bringing it back and bringing it to the forefront and actually sharing it because a lot of people are on the internet. So, you know, I'm really happy you're sharing it on, on YouTube. And, uh, I found a little spot, you know, of, uh, that you have also read St. Augustine confession and, uh, there's one spot in here. Anyway, you're you're quoting him in your book, and uh, that he that he's actually talking about nature and everything, and it's in the reality of the psyche. And uh, I remember one thing he did write that really kind of altered my life was that he was looking and seeing what the problem was. You know, because he had problems all his life. Uh, it's not easy being a saint, and uh, he had a tore up life and. Uh, he was very dramatic, but what he said, you know, see, I found the problem. You know, I found out what my problem is, and I was reading it. I went, yeah, what's your, what's the problem? He said, well, it's myself. <laughs> I'm the problem. I'm the source of the problem, but that means to me mm-hmm. we're also part of the solution of getting up mm-hmm. and uh, getting out there, like you're saying, and, and meeting nature. And, uh, you know, if you live near the ocean, go down to the beach once in a while. If you have a backyard, you know, I have a tremendous uh, – I live near the ocean, but – I also have a backyard, and I get such happiness just from the green grass. 
You know what I mean? It's as mm-hmm. simple as that, looking at it. And I noticed my dog does mm-hmm. too. Look just stare out there. <laughs> looking mm-hmm. at the grass, how beautiful this all is, you know. And I want to thank you so much for being mm-hmm. on the show tonight. And, uh, thank you, you so know, much, very much. And you're welcome back. And um, what do you have coming up? Do you have uh, anything you want to tell us about? Well, the next project that I'm going to be working on is um, I've been doing workshops for years on sort of our archetypal nature, the archetypal stories inside of us that uh, define how we find fulfillment in the world, that find us our deepest satisfaction and our identity through certain archetypes. And I'm developing um, a new book and a workshop on that. So that's my next my next thing. There's For now, you can check out the first version of it at yourmyth.com. And you can like it on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash your myth. It's called Archetypes of the Feminine and Masculine is the current name, but it's going to be called Our Archetypal Nature or Archetypal Nature in the new version. Okay, thank you so much. And thank you so much for being with us tonight. You're welcome on any time. And carry on, young man. Take care. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Keep doing it. Okay, you take care, Thank you. Thank you. Okay, good night. Okay. Good night. Happy New Year, too. You You too. Thank you. I know. Happy New Year. Okay, bye. Bye. So, you know, we just had an amazing uh, conversation with uh, Gary Bobroff uh, talking about his book, uh, Crop Circles, Young, and the Reemergence of the Archetypical Feminine. Uh, it's been a very interesting couple hours. I mean, really, uh, it's not often that you're going to hear uh, this kind of conversation. I also encourage you, if you're interested in Carl Jung, besides you know reading all his stuff, which I've read so much of his stuff and uh, incorporated actually into my whole life, that you can also find uh, like-minded people. You can go, of course, get his, get his book, and it's a good way to start, and you get a lot of resources in his book, and also I I did a lot of training up at the C.G. Young Institute, J-U-N-G Institute, up in Los Angeles, uh, California, that was uh, a really a benefit to me. And then if you can afford it or get a scholarship and you need counseling, uh, do, uh, I think Bob does uh, counseling uh, too. Uh, so just go to his website so you can... Uh, uh, find out uh, everything and uh, find his information and everything else. And I just want you to, be, I want to just tell you about what's going to go on next week. Let's see here. Next week, same time, same station, we're going to have an awesome person that, uh, I just let me read this one little thing left, and uh, it's a little uh, quote that I, I got from um, Gary's uh, website about Carl Jung, he says, where love rules, there is no will to power. And where power predominates, the love is lacking. And the one is the shadow of the other. So love more, power down to other people less. You know, and I just wanted to, to say how much uh, you can get out of this whole thing. So go to C.G. Young Institute it's in West Los Angeles, California, where you can get books and everything else. Of course, everything is online. So let's uh, list, list uh, next week we have Joan Hangardner, the author of the Miracle Club. You know, follow you follow the links, and I'm going to have set up a, the link to her page. It'll be on my Facebook page, and also be on the Paranormal and the Sacred. So if you listen to the Paranormal and the Sacred, you can go ahead and like 
like the page on Facebook, and I post all of our upcoming events on there. And you also can follow the link to contact me for general messages, or if you'd like to be on the show, and if you want general help and assistance. And uh, I really appreciate your feedback. Also, uh, you can reach me by snail mail. I know nobody does it. Sean McCain, PO Box 980, Hermosa Beach, California, 90254. And the show is archived so you may listen to it again. And remember to tell your friends. And uh, the Paranormal Sacred is here every Friday. And we also have a um, a little Bible study show that I do every Sunday that's uh, at 11 a.m. every Sunday. And we're almost finished with Acts, so... I'm really getting a lot out of that. It's just a little, you know, Bible study. We just keep it plain, telling you. uh, I'm getting a lot out of just reading it, and then we can all listen for ourselves. So I want to thank everybody that listened in tonight. Um, I want to tell you, uh, actually, I hope you had a Merry Christmas, and uh, I just, just pray for each other that the new year ahead is a totally different one, that we can have uh, filled with light, you know, filled with uh, understanding of uh, what makes us real, which, you know, what I'm trying to say is get out there and play in the country because you feel better about yourself and about everybody else. So anyway, I wish you all the best tonight, and I wish everybody a happy new year. And we're going to be visiting with Joan Hangardner next Friday, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, as usual. And... uh, it's going to be amazing listening to her on her artwork, her book, The Millionaire Miracle Club. And God bless you, and take care, and we're off for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.